Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I am a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film News Editor, Whitechurn Boy. Hey, everyone. All right, actually, let's jump into the news today. Let's kick things off by talking about a piece of news that happened a few, or I guess was announced a few days ago, which is uh, Paramount has a new CEO. Um, Jim Giannopoulos was the CEO of Paramount. He was running the company, the studio, since 2017. Uh, This guy named Brian Robbins, who was... um, running Nickelodeon will be coming in to replace him. Normally, we don't really care about um, the sort of revolving doors of, you know, studio executives in Hollywood. That's not yeah. really something that's... Very insider. Yeah. Um, but this this particular bit of corporate reshuffling came with uh, a little piece of news that, that I found sort of interesting. So um, basically, under Brian Robbins, the new CEO, Paramount is going to take a new direction. And the Hollywood Reporter says that Quote, insiders believe Paramount will be scaling back on its theatrical tentpole productions to focus on titles that will serve Paramount Plus. And Boris Kitt, who's a reporter at, uh, at The Hollywood Reporter, said uh, that according to those insiders, his, his quote here is that Paramount is going to be uh, retreating from big theatrical productions to focus on titles, remakes, branded content, cheaper fare that will service Paramount Plus. 
So I just want to pose this question to you, HT. Is that as bad as it sounds? Well, it certainly sounds bad. It's huge news, first of all, that they're going to be scaling back from theatrical to focus on Paramount Plus of all things, which is still a fairly green streaming service. It's not nearly on the level of being a giant like Netflix or even Disney Plus. Um, And I just, it seems like a big gamble, first of all, even with, you know, studios and Paramount losing big money at, at the box office because of the pandemic. Um, but I guess this is something we've been talking about for the past year plus, whether all of these changes, whether these losses from the pandemic are going to be permanent or whether it's just accelerating um, what's, you know, already in the works, the mm-hmm. death of theaters, the death of theatrical. Um, and it seems like Paramount seems to think this, at least. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's an important distinction to note that they're not completely getting out of the theatrical business. Like, they're just scaling back on their bigger stuff. But still, like, that means that, um, you know, less... Like movies like Arrival, you know, I think that's a good example of something that we probably, that was a Paramount movie. Uh, Denis Villeneuve directed that film. All of us love that movie. Um, And that film, I think, was one of the best movies of the past several years. And that's the type of movie that probably wouldn't get the green light under this new Paramount regime because... Uh, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it costs a lot of money and it's not based on anything. And, uh, well, I mean, technically it was based on a short story, but, um, or, or, a, yeah, a short story within a, a book of short stories, but, yeah. um, you know, not exactly, a you know, hopping IP there. So, um, you know, I, I just think, uh, in an industry that has experienced such consolidation over the past few years, that's like one fewer one less place for, uh, you know, potential filmmakers to come and, and take their stuff and, and try to sell it and, and find a home for big, the, the type of like big mainstream entertainment that we love, you know, we love all types of movies that slash them, but mm-hmm. um, that's the kind of movies that I think a lot of our audience that I love that a lot of our, our audience loves, you know, these big franchises and, and just like, you know, big genre movies and stuff. So yeah, for, for a studio, a mate, one of the few remaining major studios to so blatantly say, yeah, we're scaling back and, and servicing the streaming service um, and sort of prioritizing that above seemingly all else. Uh, it's a little bit of a bummer. I mean, is there any silver lining that you can see here, HT? Is the, is the fact that like maybe we, you know, uh, branded content doesn't automatically mean cheaper stuff that just technically could mean um, recognizable stuff. So if, if, for example, Paramount was to say, okay, let's make a Mission Impossible TV show. Let's pay Tom Cruise a ton of money. Let's get him to, to star in a Mission Impossible uh, Paramount Plus show. And if they did several of those types of things, I mean, what, what would you say to that? I would... I don't know. It's hard for me to think of a silver lining for this just because everything that you're saying is just the opposite of what I want from studios uh, right now. But I guess if I'm going to be optimistic about it, um, not only could they possibly uh, double down on these kind of recognizable 
franchises like Mission Impossible and turn it into something like a TV series, but perhaps we could see the return of the mid-budget film. We've seen Steven Soderbergh doing great work over at HBO Max, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, he's he has frequently turned away from theatrical um, releases just because he's found that a lot of studios aren't willing to to bank him on these kind of mid-budget films that he's been known for. Movies that are, you know, for adults um, and aren't, aren't necessarily like bombastic and big, but they requ- they have like a big enough cast that they require a bit of money. Um, so maybe, maybe Paramount will be also open to investing in these kind of mid-budget films, investing in auteurs who have been maybe shut out of the the, the theatrical uh, experience because they aren't, you know, behind a franchise or because yeah. they aren't a big name. Yeah, I think that's a really good potential silver lining here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking sort of broadly, like we were talking about the pandemic and, and you know, uh, I don't know. I think I think the impact, the full impact of um, the pandemic on uh, people's uh, willingness to go to theaters in the same numbers that they used to still, we don't know like what the, you know, what the extent of that is yet. Um, but in a world where uh, everybody just sort of sits on the couch and clicks around on their streaming services, I wonder if news like this is bad for movies, but good for entertainment. Like for, from it's bad for people like us who really care about movies, but for most people who just sit on the couch and look for something fun to watch, um, I wonder if it if that distinction between movies and streaming stuff uh, is going to just continue to matter less and less. And and maybe if uh, you know if Tom Cruise is in a Mission Impossible show, for example, um, will Joe Sixpack really care that it's not um, you know that it wasn't a movie that then got funneled into that service? Does it will that matter? You know, so I mean, I think that's already happening, unfortunately. Um, and these are the same people who are cutting uh, money from arts and other various things. So, you know, they just expect the the entertainment to come streaming into their services without actually having to pay for it. But, you know, that's a whole other thing yeah. to rant about. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. So uh, to avoid a rant here, let's talk about Christopher Nolan and uh, his next project. I don't think on the podcast that we have mentioned what Christopher Nolan's next movie is because it was just announced a few days ago and then uh, even more recently than that that film has now found a home so so HD just uh, maybe set up for the people who have not been following this closely what is Nolan's next project and where is it going to end up yeah, so Christopher Nolan's next film uh, will be another World War II set film, but it will focus instead on J. Robert Oppenheimer's role in the development of the atom bomb during World War II. Uh, there's no title as of yet, um, but we've seen Nolan in the World War II territory before. His second-to-last film, Dunkirk, uh, which is incredible, by the way, a very underrated, just all-time, honestly, one of my favorite Nolan movies. Um uh, and you know, if he if it ain't broke, don't fix it because <laughs> he's back where he's he's doing strongly. Even though he's not back with the studio that uh, distributed Dunkirk because of the well known feud between Christopher Nolan and Warner Brothers after Warner Brothers' decision to release all this 2021 films to both theaters and HBO Max on day and date releases. So that leads me to this new story, which is Christopher Nolan has found a new studio uh, to house his untitled uh, Oppenheimer atom bomb film. And that is? 
Universal Pictures. Okay. Uh, per deadline, they will finance and distribute Nolan's next movie. It has been given the, given the green light, and production is expected to begin in the first quarter of 2022. So yeah, this is a big deal because Warner Brothers has been Nolan's home for, I think, ever since, um, what, Insomnia, probably? Uh, I think so, yeah. And that's that's going back, you know, well before uh, Batman Begins. So um, yeah, I mean, he's been one of those guys like uh, Clint Eastwood and, and Ben Affleck who have like been loyal to the place that... Um, you know, what is that phrase? Like, uh, dance with the person who brought you, I guess. Like that's kind of, (laughs) that's an old school phrase, but, um, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what Nolan's relationship has been like, uh, with these studios here. And and really, you know, he's been like a single studio kind of guy. Um, and now the schism that you mentioned has caused him to jump over to universal. So I'm really curious to see if this is the start of, you know, a brand new relationship where he only makes movies with Universal for the next several years, or if he's just going to bounce around depending on the project. Um, we obviously have no way of knowing that. But uh, what do you think about the idea of him making a movie about Oppenheimer and the, the atom bomb HD? Like, obviously, uh, no one is probably best known for stuff that feels um, otherworldly or, uh, you know, like fiction that... Um, you know, the superhero stories or things like Inception or The Prestige or whatever. Those are the kind of top of mind movies when you think of Christopher Nolan. I think right. Dunkirk. The high concept sort of mind bender type of film. Yeah, exactly. So this is this is not one of those films, but you mentioned before, like Dunkirk uh, has laid the groundwork for him to explore a, a true story like this. So what do you think about uh, him returning to that type of filmmaking? Yeah, even so, it's kind of new ground for him because even though he has – uh, dabbled in World War II and in true stories before. This is the first film I think that won't be an en- ensemble for him. He's he's very strong. Well, actually, that's not true because Memento and Insomnia are both not ensembles. Okay, I take that back. <laughs> Anyways, I, mean, I think I think both of them have ensemble natures to them. Mm-hmm. There's still you know I, I I would say that uh, Insomnia in particular is like almost a two hander between. Well, it's almost really a three-hander between um, Pacino, Hilary Swank, and Robin Williams. Like they're all sort of equal uh, on equal footing. Definitely, Memento has like that Guy Pierce role is pretty central, but there's also such a good supporting cast. That's one of Nolan's great talents, I think, is pulling together those um, really, really strong supporting. Uh, groups of, of actors so yeah and I wonder if he'll do the same with this which seems to be very much on the biopic route especially since the uh, very vague synopsis that we've got from Deadline is that it's about Robert Oppenheimer and the development of the atom bomb but maybe it being Nolan he'll turn it into more of an ensemble piece instead of just a straightforward biopic which I'm all happier for because I don't know how I'd feel about a Nolan biopic considering he already has a very like dry and distant directorial style as it is. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, that kind of style excels when it's in a high concept, high octane type of film like like Tenet or like Dunkirk or like Inception. And um, I'm not sure if I would if I could see that particularly melding well with just a biopic. So I'm sure he'll do something, you know, different than just the straightforward true story type of yeah, film. Yeah, I'm really curious about that too because he's definitely like a, um, I would call him a bombastic filmmaker and he really leans into like big movies and mm. this does not sound necessarily like a big movie. He's also one of those guys that like, uh, you know, Richard Linklater who's really, really interested in time, exploring the notion of time and, and twisting timelines and all of that kind of stuff. So like what, how does that uh, 
layer onto the Oppenheimer story. I don't know. I'm curious to find out. But most um, important question is how is he going to get Tom Hardy in a mask this time? <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Oh man, I'm excited to see. And and what role is uh, is Michael Caine going to play? Is he yeah. just going to be another voice on a on a cockpit kind of thing like he was in Dunkirk, or is he actually going to be a, a legit part of the ensemble here? Good question. Um, all right, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Dune. Um, Denis Villeneuve, we mentioned him before. He's got this movie Dune coming out. It's really the first part of uh, a larger story. It's like essentially the first half of the book, which was written by Frank Herbert. We've talked a lot about this movie in the sort of lead up to it. I think it's coming out next month uh, in theaters and on HBO Max. And there's been a lot of discussion online about um, because of the movie's release strategy, the fact that it's going to come out on HBO Max at the same time as theaters, uh, how that might affect this movie's box office prospects. And because this is only one half of, of the story, there's been a lot of sort of hand-wringing, I think rightly so, about like what that could mean if this movie does not perform uh, up to the, the standard, the new pandemic standard, whatever that is, these sort of always constantly moving goalposts, does that mean that we as as fans, as audiences, run the risk of never being able to see the second part of Dune? And according to an interview with Variety, Villeneuve talked about how he actually planned to shoot these, like both parts of Dune essentially at the same time. He said, I wanted at the beginning to do the two parts simultaneously for several reasons it didn't happen. And I agreed to the challenge of making part one and then wait to see if the movie rings enough enthusiasm. As I was doing the first part, I really put all my passion into it in case it would be the only one, but I'm optimistic. If such a thing as Dune part two happens, I will say that it's going to be an insane playground for me. It's just going to be uh, it's going to be just like pure cinematic pleasure for the second part. I don't want to speak for everybody in the team, but I will say that we really crafted on this movie a feeling of family and to reunify everybody together again, that would be paradise. So, um, HT, are you concerned that uh, that we might not get to see Dune Part 2? I was concerned from the beginning because it's Denis Villeneuve, one of my favorite working filmmakers today who uh, goes big for those high concept, high ambition types of films that I love and that critics love, but that bomb at the box office. And then (laughs) miraculously, he keeps getting films, which is really exciting because I think he's one of the most talented uh, working directors. But um, I don't know. (laughs) I didn't know whether Dune would be a box office hit, and I honestly had doubts that it would. But um, I have hopes that it could continue just because I love seeing anything Vinav has up for us and especially him doing Dune, which is so exciting for me. I really enjoyed uh, the novel despite having like my issues with it because it's a book from the 60s and has all sorts of problematic racial codings. But I really wanted to see what Vinav had up its sleeve and that beautiful cast. I'm I'm just really excited for this film. It's one of my most anticipated movies of the year and I want to see it continue uh, and yes. not just drop off on a cliffhanger. So um, that's that's my hopes, my fears, um, and I'm in the same boat as Vienna, basically. Yeah, yeah, and I I was right there too. And actually, this morning we published a story that uh, a different piece from Variety mentioned that um, the HBO Max deal that was I guess finalized maybe earlier this year after being announced in December of last year and sort of throwing the entire industry into chaos. That HBO Max deal quote gives Villeneuve 
uh, assurances that diminished box office revenues won't prohibit him from having the chance to make his follow-up film. So the language there is not, um, you know, super concrete, but uh, they won't it won't stop him. It, yeah, it sounds kind of promising. Yeah. So uh, we'll it, see. It gives me some more hope than what I had initially, which was very little hope. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that's promising enough that even if it does bomb, as it probably will because no one knows what Dune is. Um, I I think that maybe there's a chance for him to continue the story. And I hope that Warner Brothers will do it just because this year has been so strange and maybe they'll have more leniency for the performances of their films from uh, 2021. Yeah. And one other little nugget from, from this uh, variety piece that I found really, really interesting was that uh, evidently Warner Brothers gave um, the director the option to wait to premiere Dune in 2022 just in theaters because in 2022 that HBO Max simultaneous deal is going away so they gave him the option and he chose I guess to stick with the 2021 thing I don't know about that (laughs) oh you don't think that's right well I don't know this the whole report does feel like studio execs kind of try to cover their Mm, their tracks mm. um so the the first part of the um, there's potential for a Dune sequel, despite the box office performance, I trust more than, oh, we talked to Villeneuve. He totally was on board with this because he obviously wasn't in the aftermath of that announcement. And then many people were blindsided, as we saw in the yeah. reports that followed. So that one I'm a little bit more skeptical of. Yeah, I, I mean, my read on this would be like, if this is true, it sounds like something that they talked to him about after they made that initial announcement. And like Dune was was uh, theoretically included in that first batch of 2021 films. But it sounds like, you know, because he in particular pitched such a fit publicly and like wrote essays and variety and in, in different publications, I think, um, sort of decrying this, this decision. It wouldn't surprise me if the studio came to him, you know, whatever, uh, several months ago this year sometime and said, Hey, if you really, you know, uh, feel this strongly about it, we can kick it into 2022. But, uh, it sounds like from this, this, uh, the context that variety provided that it may have been like financially uh, motivated, whereas like they wouldn't be guaranteed certain backend payouts and stuff if it was pushed to next year. Um, because like, a lot of the the filmmakers who had movies that are supposed to be coming out in theaters and on HBO Max at the same time have gotten big checks from the studio because like to sort of offset that back end money that they would have made. So um, yeah, it sounds like I guess several things are sort of swirling there. And I, I guess that, that that's a good point. HTA. I should, I should sort of uh, take this with a grain of salt, especially since uh, he's been so vocal about um, not really loving the circumstances under which this movie is going to be released. But uh, all right, let's move to our, our last story here, which is that uh, the Penguin, the Batman villain, is getting a spinoff show. Uh, that's kind of all we really know right now. We know that, um, what is her name? Lauren LaFranc, who wrote on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I have never seen that show, so I'm not really familiar with it her work. It's solid. Okay. Uh, she is going to be writing a, a script for a new show uh, centered on the Penguin. And Matt Reeves, who is directing The Batman, is going to be executive producing this series. So this is another spinoff of that film. Um, there's a, a previously announced spinoff about uh, Jim Gordon uh, that is supposed to be primarily set in the Gotham City Police Department, follow like a corrupt cop. Um, so yeah, that's coming to HBO Max. And now we have this news about a, a Penguin show. So HT, what do you think about this? Are you um, intrigued by uh, by HBO Max's 
uh, willingness to pluck things from the Batman and uh, and just sort of give them their own show. Uh, I guess sight while the while the rest of the world is sight unseen on the on the movie itself. Yeah, they seem very invested in this film in particular and just trying to build a whole cinematic or just um, universe in general. I don't know, multimedia universe out of it uh, because of all the projects that are coming out of it. And they seem to be doing this not only with the Batman, but also Suicide Squad and and, uh, all of those other superhero DC superhero films that are coming straight to HBO Max. So mm-hmm. it seems like to be part it seems to be part of a wider strategy on Warner Media in general of trying to since their DCEU has been so shaky to begin with, maybe build it from the TV side just as much or the streaming side and I think they might actually be more successful in this regard because they like there's no shortage of of content or characters from DC that can have their own stories. So honestly, TV, I'm not not mad about it. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I mean, uh, it just doesn't seem practical in the current landscape for like the Penguin to get his own movie that that is released theatrically. But sure, like an HBO Max show, like that's the kind of thing that I feel like these streaming services can provide is just the perfect um, like location the perfect platform for smaller scale stories like that so uh word on the street is that colin farrell has been uh, approached to reprise his role from the batman and the show is going to be like a scarface like uh, show that sort of uh, details the rise of the penguin in the the gotham underworld um Colin Farrell, I don't know if you recall, H.C., what Colin Farrell looks like in the very, very brief uh, snippets of footage that we've seen. He looks very unlike Colin Farrell. He does, yeah. He's totally buried under makeup and prosthetics. Um, he looks very much like Richard Kind. That's like the big joke that's been going around uh, ever since we first saw that that little uh, teaser trailer. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we know that Colin Farrell as the Penguin is not really in the Batman movie that much because there are so many villains in that movie and there's just no real estate to explore all of them, you know, super in depth. Um, but again, you know, a, a place like HBO Max, that seems like a good place to explore this. Do you think that uh, Colin, I mean, based on literally nothing, HD, do you think that Colin Farrell would be down for, you know, slopping on all of that makeup and prosthetics to film, you know, let's call it a, a eight or 10 episode uh, miniseries or whatever you want to refer to it as on HBO Max? Or do you think they might cast somebody younger to do like a, a true flashback kind of thing about the rise of uh, of Oswald Cobblepot. Honestly, I I don't know. Just because Colin Farrell, I don't think he would be willing. He is a movie star still. I don't think he'd be willing to sit under hours uh, for hours on the makeup chair to get all those prosthetics. But also, he's kind of a wild card, <laughs> and maybe he will. He's not opposed to doing a prestige TV or a mo- or limited series. There was one. <laughs> I don't remember what the title was, but apparently it was very good. That came out recently, and I'm sorry for not remembering what it was or what it was called. Yeah, he was but in he was like a True Detective. Guy. Yeah, he was in True Detective season two. That was yes. in 2015, and then more recently, I think the one you're talking about is called The North Water, yes, which is that. on uh, AMC Plus. Do you know anything about that show? I've never seen a trailer for it. I don't know anything except that Colin Farrell uh, had a very big big beard. No, okay. <laughs> so he looked kind of like a pirate. So you I mentioned like, he was like a sailor. Is it like a like a Willem Dafoe in the lighthouse sort of scenario? He looked very scraggly. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is like from the one image that I vaguely remember. 
So I don't know about this is at all accurate. Yeah, but we yeah. are on point here with the details. Yeah, um. obviously he's not opposed <laughs> to doing TV, especially if it's for a limited time and if it's prestige TV. And if he gets a lot of money from it, which I I don't know if Warner Brothers would or Warner Media would be willing to pay, but maybe they would. Um, but yeah, you know, it'd be really funny if it was uh, about you know uh, hot penguin who fucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like you know, it's it's just it's just Colin Farrell looking like Colin Farrell, and he slowly becomes more and more um, grotesque and starts to look yeah. more like Richard kind towards the end. It's like a Breaking Bad situation, except he just becomes more like <laughs> wow, yeah. more penguin looking. Love that. That's Love my that. off the cuff pitch. Uh, I, I am fully on board, and uh, if HBO Max is <laughs> is curious or looking for an extra writer, it sounds like they know where to turn. HC, so. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Home Daily. You can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com, of course, and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find on the site. There are so many features on SlashFilm.com right now. You guys, you should read them. They're all incredible. You can subscribe to Slash Home Daily on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps. And send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.